Week nine, the secret. This is what we've been doing, a nine-week series on the study of Colossians. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to actually finish up the book tonight. It's actually a very interesting ending that Paul has. It's not an ending that maybe we would expect. If you've read ahead, you know what the ending is. But let me just start with our strategy. Here's our strategy, is that we've actually been building a house. Over the last couple of weeks, actually, and that's two months, we've actually been building a house. We've been looking at what it is like to live our lives for Christ, taking the, the, the blueprints that are in the book of Colossians and then applying it to our lives. So if you want to take out your Mad Libs for a second, we're going to look at those real quickly. We're going to actually finish the Mad Libs tonight. So if you have someone who has stopped you at work tomorrow and says to you, hey, what is the book of Colossians about? You'll be able to tell them, look, I can tell you what the book of Colossians is about. I can tell you in just a couple quick sentences what the book of Colossians is about. And so on the, we're going to finish up the book of Colossians here on side A. On side B, there's this, what we're going to talk about tonight. So you can fill in and finalize your Mad Libs. And if you missed a week or two or whatever the case may be, then you are able to note that in there and put that in there. Actually, it's already in there for you. Okay, let's recap real quickly. First week, we talked about clearing the ground, clearing the ground, right? Paul begins the letter by saying, hey, everybody, I'm Paul. You're in Colossae. I don't know you, but God has inspired me to write this letter to you. Actually, it's a, it's a strategic argument, even though it has a beginning ending like a letter. It's really a strategic argument. And so the first week we talked about how Paul said what? What was the opening? We're just going to clear the ground, right? We're going we're gonna to start afresh because we are now believers in Christ. If we have been a pagan before in our lives, if we've been a non-Christian before in our lives, if we followed Apollo or Zeus or we followed the Stoic philosophy or any other ancient world idea, uh, whether we sought after riches, whether we sought after money, whether we sought after fame or fortune, whatever that is, that's our old life. That's going to that's gonna go bye-bye because now we are believers in Christ and we're going to live our lives in order to do what? Well, the second week, we're going to get the vision. So we open the plans for the house that we are going to build. We open the plans and Paul says, what? What is the vision for the building the building? What is the vision for building our lives? To honor God, to honor God above all else, to make him number one in our lives and to simply honor him with our lives. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Now, the third week we did what? We laid the foundation. And here's the first part of the foundation. It's actually the formwork. You actually put the formwork in the ground and that way you can put a foundation down that will be level and secure and and solid. And the first part of the foundation, Paul says, is what? For our lives is the fact that Christ is God in flesh, that in the ancient world, lots of people had different views of God or different ideas of God, and they couldn't imagine that God could actually be the creator God and love them. They actually had the idea that there was a creator God and lots of other gods who did other things, but the creator God and the demigods, they were not connected. And so Paul argues that, listen, that the God who created the universe is the same God who loves us and the same God who came down and was willing to do what? This is the second part of laying the foundation. Pouring the cement, pouring the concrete. What was the second part of the foundation? Really, the, the, the two parts, two sides of the coin of the foundation is the fact that Christ was willing to be a sacrifice for you and I. And that's really what was radical, was not only the fact that the God, great God of the universe who created the universe was willing to come down and, be a, and to, to be with us, but also that he was willing to sacrifice for us. In the ancient world, what happened? This is going to be unusual for many of you, but in the ancient world, if you wanted a God to do something, they believe you had to do what? If you wanted Zeus or Apollo or Dionysius or any of the other gods to do something for you, what did you have to do? You had to do something for them, right? You, you know, your crops weren't doing well. What'd you do? You had to make enough sacrifices. You had to sacrifice enough animals in the temple. That's what you had to do. By the way, the Greeks and Romans did the same thing. They had animal sacrifice, and that was a part of their worship also. And so they would come, and they would make sacrifice, hoping, oh, you know what? Your crops, you had famine. Guess what you didn't do? 
You didn't, you didn't make enough sacrifices. You didn't do enough good. Now, in the ancient world, it was a, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Really, really different than the world today, right? The world today is not like that at all. And so it was very radical for Paul to say that Christ, Christ actually was the one who came and sacrificed for us, needing nothing in return for us. What must we do to be right with God? There is nothing that we can do to be right with God. Only the single act of Jesus being willing to come and die on the cross is the only thing that will ever make us right with God. We cannot earn it. We cannot do enough. We cannot, there is not enough rituals or religion or anything that we can do to be right with God. It is simply believing and trusting in his son, Jesus. That's what makes it both beautiful and at the same time radical. Why is it radical? Because we feel like we've got to do stuff. We feel like we still have to bow down to statues. We still have to worship our ancestors. We still have to do this. We still have to do that. But we, we don't do that because it dishonors God. God did one thing for us, one thing that does it all, that does it all, and all he does now is ask us to honor him. So we talked next week about erecting the frame, right? And this week we talked about the secret. You guys know what the frame of the house is, the two by fours. It's kind of what holds the house up. It's what holds everything else up. And we talked about, Paul says, the secret of the Christian life is what? Anybody know? For those of you here, what's the secret of the Christian life? Right, that Christ lives in us. And that's also very radical because in the ancient world, they never thought that a God could ever have anything to do with people. Maybe a lower God, the lesser God would, because the lesser God is some cosmic bureaucrat who doesn't mind getting his hands dirty. But the great God of the universe would never be involved with people. And yet the great God of the universe is and in fact dwells with us on a day-to-day basis. We actually have a personal relationship with the God who created the entire universe. And by the way, he dwells within us. And so the skeleton, the frame of our lives, now that we're believers, is that Christ dwells within us and he dwells with us. And, and he has that personal relationship with us. Now the next week we put on the roof. Why do we put on the roof the next week? Why do we put on the roof? What is the roof? Hey, this week, a roof was a good thing. What did it do all week? Yeah, it protects us from the elements. I mean, if you didn't have a roof over your head this week, I feel for you. It was a terrible week. It would have been really bad. And so the roof protects us from the elements. Paul says the next part of it is, is that once we have Christ in our lives, once we have the frame up, we need to be careful. You know why? Because people are going to try to convince us that our worship of God is not sufficient. And he says, you got to put a roof over your head. you got to be careful because people are going to come to you and say, that's not religion. You're just honoring God, but you got to still do more or you can do more. Or, you know, so what if you have Jesus? Come down here to the temple and bow down to the statue. Or people say, well, you know what? I pray five times a day or I pray 10 times a day. I light a thousand candles. What have you done? And Paul says that people are tended to be jealous towards that. And they'll say, ooh, you know, maybe I should bow down to a statue also. Maybe I should light candles also. But as the example I gave that week, if I invite you over to my house, this is the example. If I invite you over to my house and my wife cooks you a big, huge meal and you eat the meal and you say, well, it wasn't very good. I need you to fix me something else because I want more food. What am I going to say to you? It's kind of rude. It's going to be offensive to me, wouldn't it be? And when we, as Christians, when we know that Christ died for us, and yet we want more, we want to add religion, we want to add ritual, we want to add burning candles, bowing to statues. When we add all this stuff, what do we do? We dishonor God, because it is only and solely Christ's sacrificial death that puts us right with God to begin with. No amount of religion or rituals make us right with God. And so that's what we talked about the sixth week. And then the seventh week, we did what? 
Oh, there's the picture of, by the way, putting on the roof. The seventh week, we put up the sheetrock and the stucco. Show everyone what kind of house you are, because when you put up the sheetrock, that's what people see. People don't see the foundation, do they? I mean, when you drive by a house, you don't see the foundation. You see the roof, you know, but really what you see is the walls. You see the walls, the doors, the sheetrock, the stucco that goes on around the house. That's what you see primarily. And we talked about this is the big passage in Colossians where Paul says to do what? Live your lives in such a way to honor God. Why should you live your life in such a way to honor God? Because other people are going to see you. Uh, that's, this is the part of your life that everyone else sees. Live your life in such a way as to honor God. Why? Because when you do that, you're honoring the sacrifice that Christ made. And finally, last week, we talked about installing the fixtures. How many of you, how many of you know what this is? That's an outhouse. Is an outhouse, which is better, outhouse or indoor plumbing? Indoor plumbing, is, but an outhouse is easier. Why? Because you just all you need is just a hole in the ground. That's really all you need. But indoor plumbing takes a little work. Last week, we talked about what? We talked about the fact that God wants our life to be livable. Our life doesn't have to be crummy. It doesn't have to be bad. It can be livable. But Paul talks about, and we talked about this issue last week, but Paul talks about the, what are the things that make our lives not livable? Is when we have bad relationships with the people around us. By the way, this section where in Colossians where it says ladies submitting to their husbands and guys honoring their wives and, and, the, hus- and the husbands not hurting the kids. And, the, and it's just like real quick. It's not a theory of how to whole, have your whole family. It's just simply a statement that, look, if you want to honor God with your lives, you've got to get your family relationships right. Is loving your family more difficult than loving people at work? Yes, arguably it is. Why? Because your family's hard to deal with. They get on your nerves. They, they see you for who you are. It's hard to really be committed to your family. It's hard to really love them the way that you should. And yet that is what happens when we follow Christ. Can you, can you treat your family bad and still love God? Probably not. Probably not. Your family is where you demonstrate that you honor God. And today, lastly, we're going to finish up tonight. We're going to paint a pretty picture. We're going to let our house shine into the world. So how many of you know what this is? Everybody know what this movie this is? What movie is this? Karate Kid, right? Okay, good. What does Daniel do? It's wax on, wax off, right? But before that, it's paint on, paint off, right? Paint on, paint off. So today, we're going to paint on, we're going to paint off, we're going to paint, paint our house. Why? We're going to make our house look pretty. If you have guests come over to your house, what do you do? What are you going to do if you have guests over? You're going to clean your house. So today, we're going to make our house look pretty for Christ and for our lives. So we're going to see what the Bible says here. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 through 18, if you want to open up your Bibles. We're going to, how many of you know the parts of the Bible that has the begat? The begat this, the begat that. How many of you read that in the Bible? Okay, so in the end of the passage here, in the end of the book, there, it's not begats, but there's a lot of, hey, how are you? Hey, and this. I'm going to explain why that's in there in just a minute. But we want to read the whole book, so that's why we're going to read it to the end. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 through 18. You can open up on your iPhones or in your print Bibles, or whatever you like. Colossians chapter 4. So here's Paul here. Paul says this, Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Pray for us too that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious, or I use the word secret, his secret plan concerning Christ. Now I didn't ask this, but since we're at the end of the series, why does Paul call it a secret? Ever wonder that? Why does he call it a mystery? Why does Paul call it a mystery? Anybody want to guess? I didn't cover it, but we've been talking about the secret for nine weeks. Why do you think it's a secret? Why do you think it's a mystery? Secret because people aren't aware, but I'm going to take you one step further. I'm going to argue with you. It's a secret because people can't believe it could be true. 
Because people want a religious reason for when it comes to God. They want to either be able to earn their way or somehow make themselves right with God themselves. So when Paul comes along and says, listen, there's nothing you can do to be right with God. God already made you right. You just need to accept it. You just need to honor that sacrifice. You need to make a commitment to Christ because of what he did. When people hear that, most people are like, no, can't be, because there's got to be more to it that. There's got to be some bowing down. There's got to be some, I got to put some money into this. I got to, why? Because that's the way the world works. We learn from a very young age that the world is all about you get what you give, right? Whatever you give, that's what you get. If you don't get enough, it's because you didn't give enough. But with God, that's totally opposite of the way he works. God has already given us everything everything, we just have to stop and realize that that's the case and then take hold of what he's given us. That's why it's a secret. That's why it's a mystery because we cannot understand in our minds why God would do everything himself. So it's a hard question. Nobody answered it correctly, by the way, in the either two services either. Devote yourself to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Pray for us too that God will give many of us opportunities to speak about this why. Okay, mysterious plan concerning Christ. That is why I am here in chains. Paul speaking here. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. Tychicus will give you a faithful report about how I am getting along. Here's what happens. After verse 7, Paul starts talking about all these people. Why is this important? I mean, it's in the Bible, but why is it important that Tychicus said this to this person, this said this person? At least why is it interesting? Well, if you've ever looked at other religious literature, especially religious literature from the ancient world, it tends to be what? Philosophical. This is The one thing I like about the Bible is very real and very human. Now, some of you say, well, isn't it an inspired word of God? Yes, it is. But it's at the same time also very human because these are very real people that are very normal people who have very normal relationships. They have ups and downs in life. That's what makes it different than most other religions in the world, even in this regard. So Tychicus will give you a full report about how I'm getting along. Then he says, Paul says, he is a beloved brother and faithful helper who serves with me in the Lord's work. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, to let you know how we are doing and to encourage you. I am also sending Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, one of your own people. He and Tychicus will tell you everything that's happening here. Aristarchus, who is in prison with me, sends you his greetings, and so does Mark, Barnabas' cousin. As you were interested before, make Mark, as you were instructed before, make Mark welcome if he comes your way. Jesus, the one we call Justice, also not the Savior, um, also sends his greetings. These are the only Jewish believers among my co-workers. They are working with me here for the kingdom of God. And what a comfort they have been. Epaphras, a member of your own fellowship and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings. He always prays earnestly for you, asking God to make you strong and perfect, fully confident that you are following the whole will of God. I can assure you that he prays hard for you and also for the believers in Laodicea and Heropolis, two towns that were near Colossae. Luke, the beloved doctor, sends his greetings and so does Demas. Please give my greetings to our brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church that meets in our house. By the way, if you have a life group or involved in a life group, that's exactly what he's describing there. After you had read this letter, pass it on to the church at Laodicea so they can read it too. And you should read the letter I wrote to them. And say to Archippus, be sure to carry out the ministry the Lord gave you. And then, because Paul probably didn't actually dictate it, he didn't actually write it with his own handwriting, Paul writes here, here is my greeting in my own handwriting, Paul. So he signed his name, basically saying, I, I, you know, I, was, I instructed whichever one it was to write it down. We don't know who the, 
the amanuensis is. That's the technical name for it. Remember my change, Paul says. May God's grace be with you. A very real, very human book because these are real people who are just like you and I, as we're going to talk about tonight. They have some of the same issues and same struggles that we do. But you know what? What was the one thing that makes Paul different from you and I? There's one, only one thing, and we're going to talk about what that one thing is in a second. Tell everyone your secret. Tell everyone your secret. Let's talk about this because Paul gives us a very clear understanding and idea of what we should do. Listen, how does Paul end Colossians? Does he end with a bunch of lists of things that we're supposed to do? Does he end with a bunch of morality or a bunch of argumentation? No. He ends by basically telling us, listen, everyone that you meet, tell them the secret of what God has done. Tell them what God has done. Share your faith with everyone. Now, why did I say tonight this was not going to be a very popular message? And it didn't prove to be a very popular message this morning. Why? Because we don't really like to hear that we need to share our faith. We don't really like to be challenged that way. Why don't we like to be challenged by it? Well, we'll talk about it in a second. Paul tells us this, to ask God to provide the opportunities. Even Paul says this about himself. He actually says, pray for us too that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan. So he's actually asking the people that are in Colossae that's going to get the letter to pray for him that God will provide opportunities for him to share the gospel. As believers, that's one of the things we should do. We should be asking God to provide people that we can share the gospel with, that we can tell them about God's mysterious plan, what he has done in Christ. What happens in our lives? In our day-to-day lives, one of the big challenges is being able to share with people on a regular basis. What happens? How do you share the gospel with people? Well, we've been through how to do it, and we've been over the reasons why. So let me just plead with you about one thing here in particular tonight. One of the things is, is that throughout our lives, there will always be people that we meet that we will have the opportunity to share the gospel with. The question is, will we do it? Studies show over and over again that only about 30% of Christians have ever shared the gospel even one time. Okay, so 67% or so of Christians have never shared the gospel ever in their life. None. They've never told anyone about the mystery of Jesus. Never, never, never done it. Okay, 33 or so percent have done, I think it's 37%, have done it one time. When you go to two times or three times, the numbers start shrinking radically. Why is it? Why does the people in the church, why do people call themselves Christians? Why do they not share the gospel more? Listen, I'm going to submit to you, and I've shown charts before, and I'm not, I decided I wasn't going to do any charts today because it didn't go with the spirit of the message. But one of the things that happens is, how many people do we interact with on a regular basis that we could share the gospel with? Let me put it to you like this. If you go to Walmart, right, and the lady's there, and you buy a Snickers bar, and you give her a Snickers bar, and she puts, runs up the Snickers bar, and you walk out of the store with your Snickers bar, how long were you talking to her? Two seconds. Would it be easy or hard to share the gospel there? It'd be hard because one of the problems is it's kind of awkward. You have to like get in her face and be like, hey, by the way, you don't know me at all, but come go to church with me or let me tell you about Jesus. And she'd be like, well, I have to wait on other people, sir. I can't really talk to you right now. So that's not necessarily the best way to go about it. Is it wrong? No. But if you think about it, each week, each month of our lives, there's always going to be a few people that cross our path that we have short conversations with or that we have lengthier conversations with. How many times in a month do you think you encounter someone outside of your spouse or your kids, immediate family, that you encounter where you spend more than, say, 10, 15 minutes talking to? Once a month? Twice a month? You know, in second service, I asked Seth, he's a mathematician, to figure out how many, quickly, how many people that would be over a lifetime. And if it's a couple times a month, that's almost like 10,000 people over your lifetime. 10,000 opportunities to share the gospel. And yet most of us share the gospel what? 
are we batting, instead of, because it's in the 10,000s, are we batting 0 .000, 000, 0 .001, 000, 000? Actually, it'd be 10,000, so it'd be 000, 000 or 0001 if I have my number of zeros right. How many of you want to be a zero? I didn't ask in the first or second service. How, I mean, no, none of us do. So why don't we share our faith more? Paul's going to tell you tonight what the answer is and what you need to do to share your faith more. Okay. By the way, here's the crazy thing. Even Paul had fears about sharing for his faith. He says this, pray for us too that God will give us many opportunities. That's why I'm here in chains. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. What is Paul saying? He's saying, listen, pray for me that I'll be able to share my faith. Paul also had fear. He had some hesitation. He had issues about sharing his faith. Sharing your faith is always difficult. Do you have fears about sharing your faith? I have fears about sharing our faith. By the way, let me just go ahead and just ask this question. Does anyone not have fear about sharing their faith? No. Everyone has fear about sharing their faith. Why? Fear is the number one thing that prevents people from sharing their faith over and over and over again. I mean, that's got to be like 80% of the re number one reasons people give. 20% of people say, I don't understand how to do it, but that comes back to fear more, more than anything else. Everybody has fear. Here, check it out this way. Paul, right, everybody know how Paul became a believer in Christ. Who was he before? He was a Pharisee. He was hating Christians. He actually got a writ to be able to persecute and kill Christians. He's there on the Damascus Road, and what does God do? God appears to him. Jesus appears to him and says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting my people? Why are you doing this, Paul? And Paul was like, how? when people meet God in the Bible, how, how do they meet God? Like, hey, God is cool. Meet, hey, nice to meet you. Is that what they do? What do people do that see God? Because there's a lot of fear and a lot of awe, like, oh my gosh, this is, this is, this is God is actually sort of here. Because of course, God can't make himself fully known to them. Uh, no man can look at God and live. But when Christ appeared to Paul, it was scary. But you would think that if, you saw Jesus, like literally saw Jesus on the road when you were walking, that for the rest of your life, you would never have fear about the gospel, wouldn't you? Certainly, there's plenty of people in church that would say, oh yeah, well, if I saw Jesus, I would share the gospel every day of my life. But it's not true. You know why? Because we all are human. We all have brokenness inside, and that brokenness tries to convince us that sharing the gospel is bad. And yet we encounter people every day, every week, every month, 10,000 people over the course of our life that we could share the gospel with and we fail to do it. Why? Because we're afraid. But you know what? Paul was afraid. I'm afraid. You're afraid. Let's just admit we're afraid and then let's do it. Why? Because it honors God. Now, here's the thing. When we talk about sharing our faith, here, here, here is, here's where the fear comes in. Because is the fear really a logical fear? Is it a rational fear? No, it's not rational fear. I mean, of all the many times I've shared my faith, I can't even remember. I mean, I'm sure that it's happened. But the number of times where someone has got mad with me or got hostile with me, I can't even remember the last time it's ever happened. It's been so long ago. Whenever it was, it was so long ago. If you share the gospel right, which means if you're not getting in their face and yelling at them. Okay, if you do that, you're going to get a negative reaction. But if you relationally share the gospel with people, then what, what are the most people around here going to say anyway? They're going to say, well, that's your religion. That's what you believe, but that's not what I believe. That's not really much of a hard rejection, is it? We don't like it, but it's not really that hard of rejection. A lot of people will be like, well, I'm not really into religion. You know, I don't really want to talk about this anymore. But the number of people who actually get mad is very, very slim. I mean, I even had lunch with, had lunch with an atheist about 
six, seven months ago, and with a, I told him, look, your life's got problems because you, you hate God and you're against God. And he said, all right, I don't believe you at all, but I'll do lunch with you. And we went to lunch, and I told him, you know, very point blank, look, your life's falling apart because you hate God. And he's like, no, no, you're wrong, and I'll tell you why you're wrong. And he gave me all this baloney. And I'm like, at the end of the day, I'm like, but your life is a disaster. Your family's a disaster. You know it's a disaster. Yeah, but there's all these other reasons why. Was he rejecting me? No, he was rejecting Christ. And you know what? I felt sad for the guy because he left there fully convinced that there is no God, but in a terrible divorce and custody fight with kids and abuse situation with a caregiver and just a mess. His life was a mess. He was rich, he was an atheist, and his life was a mess. But if that's the worst rejection we'll ever face, that's not much of a rejection at all, to be honest with you. But it's still fearful. It's still hard because we fear the unknown. We fear that someone might actually hate us or dislike us. But in reality, it doesn't really usually work that way. So here's the thing. Even Paul had fears about sharing his faith. There's going to be no time in your life where you'll never have fear. In fact, if you were telling me tonight, I have no fear in sharing my faith, I would say you're overcompensating for something. Because it's a normal reaction that when we put ourselves out there for God, that there's going to be a little bit of fear. But it is still what God calls us to do is what honors him. By the way, how many of you know people? Can we be, don't, don't tell me if it's you, okay? But you ever seen like the, the married couple, you know, they're in the pictures, the old married couple, what do they do? They're holding hands, walking down the beach, right? Is that the normal? <laughs> no. And in fact, we notice the one ma- old married couple that does that, why? Because they're abnormal when they're doing it. She's probably like, honey, if you don't hold my hand, I'm not going to speak to you for a week (laughs) while I walk down the beach. Okay, you know. Why? Because when we get when we get common, when we get when everything seems normal, I mean, we get complacent about. That's where I was looking for complacent. We get complacent when everything seems normal. Once you've been coming church for a while, it just seems like, well, you know. But no, God wants us and challenges us to share our faith. That's why Paul ends his letter with us sharing his faith. We should never ever pass up an opportunity. Listen. That's what I'm saying is that, they're, they're, listen, when we share our faith, there's three really categories of people. Number one is the people at Walmart who you're going to have like a 30-second or less interaction with. It's hard to share the gospel with them. Why? Because they're like 30 cents, please. Actually, Snickers bar in 30 cents. What is it, like $1.50 now or something? $1.50, please. I don't know if it's a dollar. At Walmart, it's a buck. I think everything's a buck. A dollar, please. So you give her a dollar, and she gives you the Snickers bar back, and that's the end of the conversation. It's really hard to share the gospel there. You can invite them to church maybe for Easter, but that's going to be about the best you can. And then there are the people you live with, your immediate family members, and you can share the gospel with them, but it's always a long, drawn-out struggle if they're not believers. Why? Because they live with you, they know about you, and it's difficult. But then there's lots of people that we meet in the middle, people that you do sports with, people that you, you meet at the gym, people that you meet when, when you're, you know... Uh, like, for example, with me, in the last couple of months, every time I've flown a plane, invariably, the, the whole system is down or it's a nightmare. So they have to ship me from one terminal to the other. And I get some cab driver who wants to talk about sports and baseball and everything else. And I have to ride. And I'm fearing, holding on for my life because he's driving as fast as he can in the, the old beat up, 80, was it was like an 82 Dodge Caravan. And I'm never going to see this guy again. Why should I not share the gospel with this person? Seriously. I mean, I like baseball, but I don't really want to talk about the Giants. No offense to anyone here. You know, first second service, I was surprised because more people got offended when I picked on the Giants than they did the Raiders or the, or the 49ers. It was weird. I didn't think that would be the case. But 
I don't need to talk about the giants for 45 minutes. Will I offend him by talking about faith? Maybe I will, but at the end of the day, who's more important, offending him or offending God? I would argue with you that the chance of him being offended is small. At worst, he'll just shut up and drive, <laughs> and that may not be the, the worst thing that would ever happen to you. So never, ever pass up an opportunity to share the gospel. We have people all the time that come in and out of our lives. People out there are starved for relationship. Did you know that? This is, let me add a bonus for evening service. Because when you're, when you're between the ages of zero and about, I'm not sure what the statistic is, but it's around, I think the number, my wife always cites it, that's why, and I can't remember. But it's, it's more like about 25, let's say zero to 25. From zero to 25 years old, it's very easy for people to make friends, okay? Unless there's some reason that you, you can't make friends. But from zero to 25, it's very easy to make friends. Um, but when you reach 25, it becomes very difficult for you to make friends. And which is why a lot of people we meet in San Jose, I'll ask them, you know, who's, who's your friends, who you hang out with? And a lot of people be like, I don't really have too many friends. You know why? Because when you're in 30s, 40s, and 50s, and 60s, it's really hard to make friends because you've got your life and they've got their life and you've got to schedule this and you've got to schedule that. But that lack of relationship doesn't do anybody any good. I find over and over again, especially in the Bay Area, if you just be nice to people, people and they, because you generally are interested in them, they're going to be your friends. They're going to be your friends. Never, ever pass up an opportunity. We never know when an opportunity will arise. We never know what's going to happen. You might get shuttled from one terminal to another. You might be called on to do something. Somebody might come in from work, from another business. They, need to, you know, they want to go out to dinner with you. You just never know when the opportunity will be. You can never pass up, and so you can never pass it up. Listen. What happens is, is that always live all of your life to honor God. That's what, this is why it's in here. Why did Paul include this at the end? Because he wanted to get one final unpleasant thing out of the way? No, because this has to do with honoring God. We started at the very beginning of this book, right? And Paul talks about, look, you're a believer now. And so your whole life should honor God. And the way you live should honor God. And, and finally, he ends up with the way that you speak to people. The way, what you talk about should honor God. Why? Because this is the most ultimate thing that you can do as a person here on this world is to be able to share the gospel with someone and especially see them become a believer in Christ. By the way, if you've never seen a person, if you've never shared the gospel with somebody, you're missing, you're missing one of life's greatest risks. And if you've never shared the gospel with someone and seen them become a believer in Christ, you're missing out on one of the greatest joys that you'll ever experience in this life. So don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. Be able to share the gospel and see people come to know Christ. Why does Paul include this here? Why does Paul include this here? We're building a house, aren't we? We're not talking about sharing our faith. Hey, you know what? One of my, this is not my favorite, this is not one of my favorite stories, but it's probably top 100. When I was in college, I was, and I felt like God was calling me into ministry and I wasn't I was too clear on that call and I wasn't terribly excited about it either because, you know, I didn't know, I didn't really want to be a pastor or anything like that. But I felt like I was calling me into doing something for him. And so I had to figure out like what denomination I was because there's Baptist and Methodist and Pentecostal and Catholic and Orthodox and all these groups. And I didn't really know. I mean, I knew I was Christian. I wasn't like going to go over to, you know, the Buddhist or the Jehovah's Witness or something. But I mean, I, you know, obviously in the Christian tradition, but then within the Christian tradition, what exactly, where was the one that really lined up with me? Because there are a little bit of differences and that sort of thing. And so one of the things that I had been asked to do, the Catholic the Roman Catholic youth pastor had 
invited me to come and help out with the high schoolers, which today I know that's a little weird because I wasn't Catholic, but they invited me to do it. And so I would occasionally, and I mean very occasionally, go to Mass with them. And so one Sunday, uh, I, Sunday morning, I went to Mass, went to Catholic Mass, and I was sitting in the back, and I was listening to the homily, and they were going through it, and then they came to the time where they do the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. If you grew up Catholic, you know what I'm talking about here. Maybe you've had these experiences as well. So I, was, I didn't get up to take communion at that point, but the people in front of me, they got up to take communion. And what it was is the, the group in front of me was a lot of kids that went to the neighboring college. Now, the college I went to was a military college, so you weren't allowed to drink, although they did, but you weren't supposed to. There, though, they had frats and they had sororities, and it was just one big party after another. So these people that were in this, this pew in front of me, they were totally hungover and still drunk from, some of them probably still drunk from the night before, but they came to church. So this guy gets up, and he walks down the, walks down the center pew, walks down the center aisle to go and receive the cup and the bread from, from the priest. And about halfway down, they stop and they stagger and they split. So he keeps walking, and then all of a sudden, he starts doing this, and then he boom, face plants right there in front of the church, just collapses and passes out in front of the church. So a couple of his frat guys, they his buddies, they go get him, they pull him up, get him standing up, walk down the aisle, take the bread, take the drink, come on down. Now let's be honest here for a second. If he came to me afterwards, afterwards and said, you need to be Catholic, you need to be a Christian, you need to be this kind of church, what would I say? No, I don't. This is ridiculous. You're as inconsistent as anyone I've ever met. You're a total hypocrite. You come here plastered out of your mind. But this is the way a lot of lukewarm Christians, a lot of Christians live. They live their lives inconsistently. Why does Paul include this here when we're building a house? It's really simple. Because when people look at the life you live, that's part of the decision. That's part of the reason why they're going to, to decide for Christ or not decide for Christ. You know what makes sharing the gospel hard? Is when your life is messy. Because when your life is messy, you don't want to share the gospel. You don't want to share the gospel because you don't want people to see what's really on the inside. Let me ask you a question. Let's say because of your work environment that you have a client coming in from out of town, right? You have a client coming in from out of town and the client, you're talking to him and said, yeah, well, let's get together for supper Friday night and we can go over the proposal you have and you really want this to work out with this client. And the client says to you, listen, I, I travel a lot for business. You know what would be really cool? I know it's imposing a little bit. I can't do fast food anymore. My, I get the, the acid reflux and all that stuff. Could I just come over to your place you know, uh, just fix a peanut butter sandwich would be fine. Just let me, just want to relax somewhere out of the hubbub of, of life. Well, what do you say? You, you can't say no to the guy, right? So you hang up, you get ready for Friday night. Let me ask you a question. Are you going to be more fearful if your house is already tidy or very dirty? <laughs> Which one are you going to more, be more fearful? You're going to be a lot more fearful, fearful if your house is dirty. You know why? Because you don't want them to see what's on the inside. And so you're frantically trying to clean, but you know, if your house is just really messy, it's maybe beyond hope for some of us. And so the problem is when you're just a lukewarm Christian, when you're not living for Christ and your house is messy, you don't want people to see inside. You don't want people to know, so you're afraid to share the gospel. Because sharing the gospel requires you to be a little bit vulnerable and a little bit transparent. And you don't want that because your house is messy. That's why Paul includes this here, because the real test, if you will, the real test of a person who has built a house worthy of God, built a house, built a life that is worthy of God, 
is someone who is authentic and transparent about sharing the gospel. Is it easy? No. Even Paul was afraid to do it, but Paul had a neat and tidy house. You know what I asked, I asked earlier? I said, what is the one thing that makes Paul different from you and I? There's really only one thing. It's not that he saw Jesus on Damascus Road. It's not that he was an apostle. It's not that he's in the Bible. Those things don't matter. Honestly, they don't. You know what the one difference between Paul and the average person that attends any church, even our churches, is really only one difference. Anybody want to guess what it is? What's the one difference between Paul and you and I? Paul woke up every morning and said, okay, God, whatever you tell me to do, that's what I'm going to do. That's what he did. That's the one difference. Most people wake up every morning and they just like the junk in their house and so they keep the junk there. Paul said, I don't want any more junk in my life. I'm going to serve God and I'm going to do it completely, even if I have to clean my house from top to bottom to make my life as completely transparent. And that's the one difference, because the lukewarm Christian, when they wake up on Monday, God is an afterthought. Church on Sunday, maybe if I don't have a football game to go to. Following and sharing their faith, no, it's not me, because my life is too messed up. It's dirty. The one difference between Paul and you and I is that Paul chooses every day to honor God. That's what it comes down to. By the way, Paul ends with, remember my chains. Why does he do that at the end? Why does he say, here's my greeting, my own handwriting, remember my chains, may God's grace be with you. Because Paul is saying, listen, I built a foundation with my life. I built a good foundation with my life. I was willing to sacrifice my life for God. And I want you to remember what I've done because you can do it too. You're able to also clean out your life, have a life that honors God, demonstrate that life to other people so that they too may know the goodness of God, but it really, it's really, it really is a question of how you want to live your life. So let's just recap here. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, hey, everybody. How's it going? I'm Paul. You're in Colossae. You're a believer now. Let's clear the ground. You're a believer now. Live your life that way. What's the vision? Here's the vision. The vision is that you should live your life to honor God. And in order to do that, how are you going to do that? Number one, you're going to put down the formwork of the foundation, which is that Christ is God in flesh. You're going to pour the cement to finalize the foundation, which is what? Christ, as God in flesh, came to this world to be a sacrifice for you and I. We're going to put up the sides. We're going to put up the frame. We're going to put up the two-by-fours, the skeleton for the building, which is the fact that Christ dwells within us now, that once we are on that foundation, Christ dwells within us. We're going to put the roof on next so that we're protected, so we realize, listen, it's just Christ. It's not religious ritual. It's not any rigmarole. It's not pleasing anything. It's just us honoring God. Then the next thing we're going to do is we're going to put on the stucco. We're going to wrap the house with the stucco. We're going to put up the sheetrock. That's the thing that people will see. We're going to try to live our lives to honor God. In a very general way, we're going to do things that God wants us to do, and we're not going to do the things that God doesn't want us to do. But then we want our house to be what? Livable. So we're going to put indoor fixtures in there. We're going to put indoor indoor plumbing in there. We want our lives to be livable, and so we're going to do what? Practice good relationships with our family and the close relatives and our close associates that we have. And finally... If we want to really live a life that honors God, we're going to clean up our house. We're going to make it look pretty. We're going to paint on, paint off. We're going to make the walls look beautiful. We're going to hang up pictures on the wall. We're going to put flowers in our house. And we're going to say what? I'm going to tell you about Jesus. Why? Because I'm living my life for him, and I know that you need Jesus as well. That's what the whole point of the book of Colossians is. That's it. Let's pray.